Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwein's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwein's to service their gear. Head over to volkweinsmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V-O-L-K-W-E-I-N-S music.com. Helping people discover music since 1888. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Welcome podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Today on the podcast, we have Nathan Daughtry, who's the president of Seattle Publications. He gave a great interview and uh, I really liked how he emphasized the importance of diversifying your skill set. And he really did live that way. I mean, he took the time to learn about composition and enhance his knowledge base. And I think that's important from someone who came from, say, a percussion performance background. Yeah, especially since, uh, as I said, he's the owner of Seattle Publications. Uh, that that sort of skill set, that mindset really lends itself well to knowing all of the business operations required to, to, to take over an existing business, to buy an existing business from someone and continue to run it. Not just as it was, but also to think about the future of that business as well. And I think it's also important to keep in mind for the listeners that it's he's not doing anything that they can't do. Right. Yeah. So here's part one of our interview with Nathan. Nathan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So to help people understand how you became an arts entrepreneur in the music publishing space, please walk us through your background starting from when you left college. Well, uh, my, my time actually started before I finished college. So uh, in 1998, that was during my master's at UNC Greensboro, I started working for Seattle Publications. So I've been with the company for over 20 years now. Uh, so back during my master's, when I started working for the company, it was some music engraving and it was um, like copying, like Kinko's type things, binding and uh, and collating and stapling and all the things. Uh, so that's how my time with the company started because uh, my percussion professor was uh, Dr. Court McLaren at UNC Greensboro, and mm-hmm. he started the company in 1989. Um, so he often used his grad assistants to to work for the company, paid everybody, but uh, right. you know we, we often had that opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, during that time, uh, my responsibilities kind of grew uh, over the years. Uh, I started doing more 
composer relations, music dealer relations, um, doing more traveling to trade shows, uh, dealing more directly with the customers, doing order fulfillment, all the things <laughs> that, that go uh, with the job. So uh, it was a very natural evolution from, you know, copy boy to owner. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's, that's really kind of in a very small nutshell. Uh, I, I can certainly get more in depth if you'd like. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll unpack that as as we continue. So, in a way, you you apprenticed, and you're you were kind of somewhat insulated from the responsibilities of running the business. But do you think that prepared you and eventually owning owning the company? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, this wasn't a flip the switch. Hey, you're now owner of the company. Right. I mean, obviously, at January first, twenty twenty, that's what happened. But it wasn't. Hey, all of a sudden, um, someone passes away and, hey, this is yours now. It wasn't that. We did have time to prepare. We had, uh, I, it was about two years of, uh, of knowing this was coming and going back and forth with lawyers and making sure all the bases were covered for both of us. And uh, so, yeah, there was time during those two years for me to learn more about the financials of the company um, and and just all the day-to-day of what the president was doing. And, you know, I was right across the hall from court, so I <laughs> I kind of knew uh, what was going on. But, uh, yeah, so it, that was it. I think that's fair to say that it was kind of an apprenticeship in that regard. And so the previous owner was looking to retire or get out of the business or move on? Or- yeah, to retire, yeah. Retire. Uh, yeah. Uh, he didn't really have any other <laughs> plans other than to not be working, um, right. you know, cause he, he taught at, uh, UNC Greensboro right. uh, and had retired from, uh, UNCG, uh, years ago and then decided to, yeah, step back from the company as well. And, you know, having been with the company for, for over 20 years, uh, I, he felt like it was in very good hands. Yeah. And you compose too. I do. And how did you get into that? Uh, well, uh, you know, initially just the getting your feet wet with doing adaptations of existing works, you know, whether piano or guitar, um, violin, and adapting those to keyboard instruments, primarily marimba is what I was doing. And from there, I started doing some arrangements, uh, some original arrangements, not just kind of putting chords in a complement, but, you know, making it my own. Um so those were the ways of getting in. And by doing original arrangements, I started developing, you know, some of my own voice. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't, I, I think it was the first year of my doctorate, I started taking some secondary composition lessons. Because um, um, my doctorate was a DMA in percussion. Uh, so that wasn't <laughs> a required part of it. But uh, it was just an elective. And uh, a friend of mine was doing the same thing that we shared an office. And so it was kind of a friendly competition and uh yeah so i you know i went into my first lesson with about 16 bars of a, a piano solo and was like i think this is decent i don't know where to take it next and so that was a lot of how i used those lessons was how to develop ideas and how to transition from this idea to this idea without just doing a hard stop 
restart. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that was a lot of how I used those lessons. Not only that, but getting outside of my comfort zone of writing for percussion. You know, the first few pieces I wrote were a solo piano piece, unaccompanied solo clarinet piece, uh, string quartet, and then, uh, you know, I did like an alto sax marimba duet. And, and then I started getting back into my, my comfort zone, but it was nice to be required to write for instruments other than, than my own. And are all those pieces published through C. Allen? Uh, not all of them. <laughs> you know, you don't want your earliest stuff out there all the time, right? Um, right. But uh, yes, ma- the majority of, of those pieces are available, yes. So... What do you look for when deciding which compositions to publish? Is that your decision? Is there a committee? Uh, so it, it's a combination of things. Sometimes it's solely my decision. Sometimes it's me asking uh, composers that we have in the catalog already to write pieces that fill a hole in the catalog. You know, we're really conscious of that, especially on the concert band string orchestra jazz band side of things because we want to have a balanced offering from grade one through grade five uh, in each of those categories. So we do ask our composers to contribute pieces to the catalog in that way. And so that's that's on me. Uh, for the more unsolicited um, uh, uh, submissions from composers, we... I do get opinions of uh, the people that work for the company. Everybody that works for a, the company is a musician. Um, everybody has a degree actually beyond their their undergrad. Um, but in addition to that, we also have editors on the concert band, orchestra, jazz band, brass band, all of those things. It's nice to have people who live in those worlds give their input Um on the submissions, or at least give some feedback once we've selected something or chosen something for publication, getting feedback on how to make it better or get it on grade level. You know, if there's something that makes it really difficult in just one little spot, but we could rein it in and bring it down a grade level or two, that's kind of optimal. So, yeah, yeah that's all, that's all very interesting. Um, I'm wondering if there are any other aspects that go into your decisions. And so, for instance, Andy and I speak to a lot of people in, in the arts industries, and we're finding that different companies will start to look at influencers and the impact they have. Uh, in a few weeks from now, um, we're going to release, or a few weeks from this recording, we're going to release an interview with a content provider who has what is it andy over a half a billion downloads yeah right yeah on youtube and spotify etc yeah yeah so how does the composer's presence on social media influence your decision or or does it 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 does uh to a point it doesn't necessarily make or break um our decision right uh because Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like part of our job as the publisher <laughs> is to almost act as an agent for the composers that we're publishing, right? Um, yes, it's really helpful if they already have a good social media presence and they're putting content out there and they have 
you know, multi-camera angle, uh, professionally produced videos of their pieces. That's fantastic and certainly helpful. Um, that being said, if those things aren't out there, it's our job. If we really believe in the piece, which if we publish it, we do, uh, then that's our job to, you know, represent them the best we can so that then they do have a social media presence, but maybe through us than just themselves. How do you think uh, composers should think about balancing artistic expression with commercial viability? Uh, you know, it, it, it's a great question. Um, I, I guess I always want people to trust their gut. Um, and, you know, I guess it also depends on what your goal is, right? What is your end goal? Do you want to make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars with by writing sheet music, you know, writing something at the highest artistic level. Uh, um, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's just not necessarily mm-hmm. uh, going to get you to that goal. So you might need to go a more commercial route. Um, and, you know, when I say commercial route, in in terms of like a publisher like C. Allen Publications, I'm not talking sure. about pop star commercial level. I'm talking right, about course. the style of music. Um, so, you know, that that's one aspect of it. You know, I think of uh, there's a, a poster behind me. You can't see it on the audio, but uh, it's uh, Chris Thiele and Brad Meldow, Chris Thiele, mandolin player, uh, part of Punch Brothers. And uh, I don't know if you've seen documentary um, called How to Grow a Band, which is about the forming of their band Punch Brothers. And that was what they were struggling with right out of the gate. They were playing these kind of this this highbrow chamber bluegrass suite that was Mm -hmm. like 20, 30 minutes long and multi-movement and really kind of wandering. And they were opening their concerts with it. And, you know, it's a pretty quiet audience because it's necessitated by the music, but they were really struggling to find their audience uh, there in the beginning. And, you know, like their bass player was kind of fighting them on it, saying we should really be opening with this kind of tune. And he ended up leaving the band. And after he left the band, they got a new bass player and they started doing (laughs) things that were groovier. Um, They still play the higher brow stuff, but it's kind of mixed into the concert. So I think that's a great example of adapting to uh, your audience and, you know, knowing what you want your sound to be, still doing it at a high level, but also listening to your audience. Yeah. In our courses, we analyze channels and how companies reach end users. Which methods are most effective for C. Allen and why? Uh, so it partially depends on the genre and the category of music in our catalog. Uh, because the, the consumers of each of those genres, they, they absorb the information about your music in different ways. So like on the band, orchestra, and jazz ensemble side of things... Uh, so much more of it tends to be driven by audio recordings. Um, and 
Less, you know, it's tougher with a large ensemble like that to get the high quality videos that we can get with uh, percussion and chamber music, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there's many, many uh, more players, many more microphones required, many more cameras. Uh, so I think it, that's kind of turned into people not really caring so much about video. Because when you see a video of a wind ensemble, it's pretty much just, uh-huh. you know, set up there and you see the whole stage the whole mm-hmm. time. Uh, unless you have like a higher end uh, project that uh, um, zooms in on individual players when they have features and such. Um, so yeah, on the band, orchestra, and jazz ensemble side, we approach those with audio recordings and we make those available on um, on SoundCloud. We also have them available as MP3 downloads from our website. Um, we also create um, scrolling score videos of all of those pieces mm-hmm. with audio recordings and put those on YouTube, but we also upload them directly to <laughs> Facebook and to Instagram. So all of those things, but all of those are kind of audio based and, you know, band orchestra jazz ensemble directors, they really love to see the score, right? To see how mm-hmm. something is orchestrated yeah. or see what the trumpet range is, or just the clarinet uh, section, do they go over the break, you know, uh, all, all of those mm-hmm. things. Uh, so on the percussion and chamber side of things, we're so much more uh, video driven. It, it's mm-hmm. almost inexcusable these days to release a, uh, a piece, a publication without there being video attached to it. It'll just kind of sit mm-hmm. there. Uh, right. Um, and right, so, right. you know, it, we go about that in, in a similar way of uh, getting getting videos up on all of the platforms. We don't depend on just one because, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the, the algorithms on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, they all behave differently. And uh, you just have to play the game to get it in front of people's eyes and ears. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure Andy will have some follow-up questions to this, uh, but I was just wondering, do you do any direct marketing and do you still do any print? <laughs> print marketing? Print yeah, marketing, yeah. Uh, we did not um, this past year because uh, we didn't know where people would be. <laughs> you know, most everybody was <laughs> right. at home. Uh, so yes, we still do. Um, we still do a catalog and this is just like a small catalog Um that's half of eight and a half by 11 size. Uh, mm-hmm. And that has, and that's directed toward uh, middle and high school directors. And so it covers all of our instrumental catalog uh, that would be of interest to them, right? So concert band, orchestra, jazz ensemble, uh, percussion solos, duets, and percussion ensemble, steel band. Um, and, you know, that was the result we used to do sampler CDs, uh, and you know we would get, uh, gosh, I think forty or fifty thousand of those printed, and those would go out to middle and high schools and and some universities uh, all over the country. And uh, you know that's it's pretty expensive. It, it was really successful, uh, especially when we first started doing it. Uh, there were not a lot, uh, you know, aside from roll off, there were not a a lot of percussion publishers that were putting those CDs out. Of course, concert band that that had always been happening, you know, since the advent mm-hmm. of uh, of CDs. But uh, so it was necessary back then. But now that everything is so easily accessible online, uh, what we do in the catalog, and this is in consultation with a lot of 
um, of like band directors and orchestra directors at different levels getting their input. How do you absorb this music? And so on the very front of every catalog, there's a QR code on every page of the catalog. There's a QR code that takes you directly to a playlist um, where you can listen to all of the music that's in there in the order that it appears in the catalog. So, yeah. So, yes, we do. And we will be doing that for 2122 uh, releases coming up later mm-hmm. this spring. And so it sounds like most of the sales uh, that you have are, are di- through direct channels directly with band directors or uh, um, ensembles. No, I, I wouldn't say that the it's majority direct sales. Um, no, we have oh, okay. a large music retail network. Uh, but the way that music retailers behave these days, uh, you know, everybody had to adapt at some point, right? So gone are the days of all of the music stores, uh, you know, getting huge sock orders or taking on all of the new releases mm-hmm. from every publisher. Some there are a handful that I could probably count on one hand that still do that. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, they don't necessarily uh, operate such that uh, a band director can walk into a music store and just browse through thousands of pieces, right? right? They can't afford to have that kind of inventory. So a lot of it is waiting for customers to come to them. So we have to go directly to the customers to encourage them to, to go purchase. We're kind of doing <laughs> the work and earning the discount of the music dealer. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so other than sheet music sales, what other revenue streams does C. Allen have at this time? Well, uh, I mean, there, there are things that go hand in hand with, you know, sheet music publishing. So uh, licensing, uh, a lot of our pieces are arranged for uh, uh, the marching field or for indoor um, mechanical licenses, synchronization licenses, streaming licenses, especially over the past year and a half. Um, but then performance royalties, that's a, a pretty a uh, substantial bit of income uh, that comes from ASCAP and BMI. Um, uh, what smart smart music? Um, you know uh, that that's that's a pretty easy uh, way to to bring in some money without doing much work at all, uh, and it's perfect. Mm-hmm. For, for the listeners who may not be familiar with that, maybe they're in other arts fields, or whatever. Would you mind just? Talking yeah. about that for uh, a second. So smart music is a uh, it's a music assessment tool that uh, that directors uh, can use to assess their students' development if they work on a piece. So um, you know there are method books um, that you know you can get these smart music uh, assessment tools for, but also you know full full assortment of concert band music orchestra music, jazz band music. And uh, so if those pieces are available, uh, through smart music, directors have a, a subscription. And uh, if the piece they're playing is available, then they can access that and they can have their students do playing tests on their exact part. And it, it assesses automatically just them playing into a microphone and it spits back how many wrong notes they played and wrong rhythms and all those things. So, um, And in return, they pay... Uh, royalties to the copyright owners that have submitted the music. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was I was wondering if you had an example of a piece that um and you don't have to name the piece or whatever, but an example of a piece that had kind of these multiple revenue streams associated with uh, it. And just kind of how that, how yeah, that was working. Um, you know, I can use example of like any of our, uh, maybe not with smart music, but uh, all of the other things I mentioned, like any of our large percussion ensemble pieces, those mm-hmm. are often used to uh, arrange for the marching field, right? Um, okay. And, you know, we're always getting, um, you know, license, uh, mechanical and sync licenses for uh, for those. And, um yeah. And, uh, you know, the performance royalty side of things, uh, you know, the, it's very tiered in the way that they pay out. Um, so, you know, the highest paying out, um, aside from, you know, pop music and right. <laughs> uh, large stadium venues, uh, would be like an orchestral performance hall. Uh, those payouts are going to... So if we're lucky enough to have like... a you know, easy percussion ensemble piece that's five players and three minutes long played by a youth orchestra, the percussion section of a youth orchestra, but they're playing in the symphony right. hall. The payout for that <laughs> will be more than, you know, that piece would probably not get any performance royalties at all. Cause you know, if it's just played at a middle school or a high school, you don't that's get right. any. So yeah. Great. Thanks. This concludes part one of our interview with Nathan Daughtry. Please join us next week and we'll continue the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Mm-hmm.